today I am delighted to have as my guest Dr. Rael Khan. Dr. Khan is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the USC Department of Psychiatry. He's a researcher at the Brain and Creativity Institute. He is director of the USC Center for Mindfulness Science, which is where I first met him. And uh, he's also, incredibly enough, a practicing ER psychiatrist at LA County Maine Hospital. Dr. Rael is a double doctor because he's a doctor, uh, an MD doctor, and he's a doctor, PhD doctor. So he's like a doctor twice. They should have titles for somebody like that, right? I mean, uh, what do you say? Do- doctor double the square? Doctor, I don't know. D squared. You know what they call it in medical school because there's a fair number of us around. They have, you know, they have a, a special name for us because, you know, that they don't really like us that much because we're, you know, we tend to get our medical uh, training paid for by the university as part of this NIH deal, etc. So they call us mudfuds. <laughs> but I prefer I prefer we stay away from that as much as possible. Did you say mud putts? Mud fud, you know, P H U D. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. By the way, I didn't get, I didn't have a chance to do my usual welcome to the podcast, uh, the Wolfentune podcast, Doctor Rael Khan. Thank you. Let's start with uh, the dirt that everybody wants to know about, which is drugs. Puff the magic dragon. That's the wrong one. Ma- uh, magic mushrooms. Uh, feed your head. Whatever. <laughs> you uh, have. This passion, which started uh, 25 years ago, many, many years ago as a student, for investigating, researching the effects of psychedelic drugs on the brain and seeing the difference between those effects and the effects of meditation on the brain. And by the way, when you started this research, this interest, this was not something that was uh, very popular. It wasn't a viral thing in medical schools or... Uh, academia very true or researchers right so you were very much ahead of the curve on this because now there's a growing interest in this whole field yeah that's true yeah well what came first by the way was it the uh, meditation because you're a practicing expert expert because you teach practitioner of mindfulness and meditation vipassana specifically but i know you've practiced many different styles of meditation what came first? Was it meditation or the psychedelics? That's, that's a, a pretty tough question to answer. But I think the truth is it was the meditation for me. You know, I had an unusual upbringing. My parents were hippies. So I was uh, exposed to meditation um, from a very early age. And it wasn't a consistent exposure to a style of meditation that my parents were, you know, teaching me or you know, sending me to school to learn on a regular basis, but just, you know, various different uh, kind of spiritual traditions that they were kind of coming in and out of throughout my childhood. And the the first time I remember clearly being exposed to meditation was at about age six, seven during a summer where my mom was staying somewhere over that summer close to a, a little Buddhist day school of some kind, uh, like summer school that Basically, I was, you know, going to do mostly just kind of playtime things with the other kids. Uh, but there was an exposure to, you know, in the short periods of, of meditation. And then as I grew up, it was really around age nine, I remember, that I first kind of utilized that kind of exposure from a couple of years earlier to um, help regulate some of the stress and emotional turbulence that I was experiencing uh, just as a result of you know, having a mom who was a little bit out of control. And um, I didn't become a regular practitioner by any means at that time, but I did kind of have this tool in, in my kind of mental toolbox that I knew I could kind of draw upon as needed and would sometimes just sit and you know focus on the breath and do my best to disengage from attending to or you know thinking about things and instead just being present and aware of the body and the breath from a pretty young age. Um, 
And then by the time I was in high school and getting really curious about, you know, the human condition and what life is all about, et cetera, all the books around on the shelves were mostly about, you know, spiritual stuff and meditation. And, you know, there was an early copy of Daniel Goleman's The, the Meditative Mind, uh, where he speaks about the varieties of meditation practices from traditions throughout the world. And those books just caught my attention and I started just sitting on my own on a more regular basis. And so it wasn't really until after finishing high school and starting to, you know, experiment around a little bit and be exposed to the wider world that I got that the interest in psychedelics came on board. So it really was second um, chronologically for my, my development. Well, we know that there are similarities in the effects uh, of, the, of psychedelics and meditation in terms of cognition or experiences that people have, especially experiences of the expanding sense of self, that um, it's not the self and other, necessarily that dualistic division, but um, the fact that the not-self is connected to the self, you you have two selves maybe. Um, that's just the whole idea of consciousness. But what has your research or your studies shown are the similarities and the differences between the effects of psychedelics on the brain and meditation? Yeah, that it's a... It's, uh a deep and many tiered uh, answer that one could give to that, you know, really my, my PhD thesis was in a way, you know, exploring that, but it, you know, took hundreds of pages. So I'll not go off on too many digressions and just focus on some of the, the main take home points as I know them at this point. And I think the, one of the main answers also uh, just at the outset is, well, we still don't have a really clear sense of what are the most important similarities and the most important differences between the effects of psychedelic drugs and uh, meditative practices. But I, I think we have some educated kind of informed opinions about it that I can certainly share. I think it's important, you know, in, when talking about human consciousness, human experience and the brain to reference the psychological functioning, the first person perspective um, as a primary thing because in the end, that's why we're interested in the brain, because it helps to explain something about the first-person experience, the, the, the phenomenology or the, the, the feeling of what it is to be alive in our, in our human consciousness. So I would say, you know, to start with, one of the similarities is, as you pointed to, both meditative practices and psychedelic drugs do oftentimes occasion the experience of the sense of self changing in rather significant ways. Generally speaking, there's the experience of an expanded sense of self that oftentimes occurs, meaning that the self is no longer experienced as really identified with the body and the thinking or the story of one's life, but instead somehow seems to encompass the, ex the, the quote unquote external world speaking, you know, from a physical perspective, um, feeling as if one is part and parcel of the extended world as a whole. That could be, you know, the natural world, other humans, other life that's not human, all the way to, you know, that, that sense of just being not different from, not separate from in the experiential moment-to-moment -moment awareness, uh, anything in time and space from inner and outer becoming all part of one gestalt sense of I am. And those kind of really profound transformations of the experienced sense of self are much more common with psychedelics than with meditation in the early stages of meditation. But it's also the case that meditative practices have been associated with those kinds of experiences throughout human history. And of course, there are, you know, experiences like that that have happened naturally without formal meditative practices as well that are just part of the spiritual life of many people, you know, that sometimes happen out in nature or in the church or the mosque, what have you. But meditative practices are one way to um, set the mind's uh, filters in a way that makes those kinds of experiences more likely to occur. 
and also to occur in a way that it has some sense of uh, of, of control to it. There's a, a sense where you're experiencing something that's beyond yourself that you're not really able to, you know, control the fact that you're feeling yourself to be expanded. Uh, but there is a kind of like you can kind of enter into and withdraw from that uh, kind of more expanded state based on how you use your, your mental filters, your attention. And so that's one of the ways that psychedelics and, and meditation are different. The, the fact that when you experience those kinds of states through meditative practice, while it's not totally volitional and under one's own control, you have a fair amount of capacity to kind of shift your perspective and your experience and the sense of self in and out of those more expanded and, and more kind of conventional modes. Whereas with psychedelics, once that substance is in the synapses, it's very hard to come off that experiential kind of sense until the drug itself wears off some hours later. And with psychedelics, there are also some other kind of remarkable differences at the experiential level. You know, there's a little bit more of a tendency towards physiological arousal. So feeling kind of especially more awake that certainly can come with meditation, especially once one really becomes expert in those practices but it's not as likely to happen that kind of arousal. And uh, oftentimes it's more of a kind of inner tranquility that comes through meditation. And I think that's where it's kind of relevant to start speaking about some of the brain similarities and differences as well. Right. You know, you've been addressing the, the experiential factors, but mm -hmm. I think you, we could say with some confidence that uh, we have evidence and studies that show that meditation actually changes the chemical or electronic makeup of the brain, correct? Mm -hmm. That's true. So let's talk about that a little bit, and then we'll go to the back to the psychedelics. Sure. I think there's probably a lot less research to rely on when we talk about psychedelics. What can you briefly say about the changes that meditation or mindfulness practice uh, can have an effect on the brain? Yeah, well... Just a, an important caveat, because of how much interest has come around in the last 10 years. As you said, when I got into this research as a graduate student uh, doing my PhD in neurosciences back at UCSD, my first year as a graduate student was 2001, so it was 20 years ago now. Yeah, when I got into it, there w it was still a very quiet period. It was going through the, the lull in psychedelic research. Meditation research also was in a relative low, low um, where in the 70s it had really gotten a lot of attention, um, but through the 80s, 90s, um, there was a, a real decrease in interest and actual um, you know, published studies happening on meditation and the mind generally and meditation and the brain specifically. But it's just, you know, I think it's, it's important to just say, you know, that while meditation research has really flowered over the last 20 years, so too over the last 10 years has psychedelic research. And now we have really a lot of very high quality studies published in the last 10 years on, on psychedelics and the brain as well. But to focus on meditation and the brain, there really are so many findings that it's hard to encapsulate them in, in short form. But I can give a, a kind of top level overview, which is number one, it's very clear now that there are different meditative practices and the different practices have different neural correlates and, and, uh, and psychological correlates. It's a little less clear about the real specific differences, for example, between Vipassana uh, or different schools of Vipassana and Zen or between Zen and transcendental meditation or between those types of practices and some of the Tibetan Buddhist practices or the contemplative uh, practices within uh, Christianity or Judaism. So there haven't been these head-to-head -head trials. But what has become clear as uh, psychology as a field has embraced the notion that these uh, practices, attentional practices uh, that originally started as you know, religious and spiritual practices, but now are, are kind of reconceived as attentional practices within psychological literature, that these practices have very specific and significant effects and that because the practices themselves are very different you know attending to 
one's breath in a quiet, meditative, restful manner is quite different than intensely breathing at a deep and rapid rate in like you do in, with some of the pranayama meditative practices of yogic traditions. Um, you know, both sounds different, it feels different, and we know, uh, you know, the, the brain and body effects are different. So that's one general uh, theme. And the two poles of practice uh, that have become really kind of well accepted within the academic understanding of meditation and the brain are the focused attention uh, or concentrative forms of practice versus the open awareness, uh, sometimes called open monitoring uh, forms of practice, where one is either limiting one's field of attention to a very specific subset of experience, moment-to-moment -moment experience, could be sensation, sensation of the breath, sensation of the body, could be a visualization or a mantra, could be a feeling tone, a feeling of love and compassion, for example. But all of these are, are more on the concentrative, kind of staying in a limited sphere of attentional engagement, moment-to-moment, -moment, versus the more wide open awareness practices that involve letting the mind's filters really uh, relax to the point that there's no uh, selective uh, picking out of one thing or another to attend to moment to moment, but instead uh, a wide open mind wherein one is experiencing the flux of sensation, thought, feeling, body, moment to moment without glomming onto or sticking with any particular uh, thing. And the thing, that, the particular thing that the mind tends to want to do before engaging in these kind of practices, of course, is to kind of stay very involved with thinking. It's the nature of this, the social world that we live in and the kind of conditioning of the human, as I like to say, the human animal, uh, that we live in a, a world of meaning and, and words and uh, abstraction. And so we tend to, you know, our minds just kind of want to stick there. And a lot of what meditation is about is learning how to disengage from that being our only mode of waking awareness, this kind of thinking mode. So those two poles, you know, the, the focused attention versus the open awareness poles, again, likely have different neural correlates, but because the head-to-head -head studies of those two practices are still relatively few and far between, I cannot report you know, a great deal of confidence about the difference between them. What I can say is that most people who engage in mindfulness or meditative practices actually train in both of those types of practice and each one kind of supports the other, especially the focused attention supporting the open awareness practices, uh, that much is really clear. Yeah, I mean, I find it impossible to understand how somebody can maintain open awareness without having the foundation of being able to focus undistractedly in one direction. Some people call open awareness, or, or which is another term, I think, really for mindfulness in a certain way, uh, serial concentration. Mm. The way that's taught, uh, mindfulness is taught usually is to establish a foundation of concentration. Isn't that right? That's definitely true. That's how it's typically taught. Although, interestingly, because of this, you know, growing academic appreciation for uh, mindfulness and meditation as potential beneficial uh, qualities and, and uh, trainable skills of mind, um, you know, some of these basic questions and assumptions about, you know, how things have always been taught are being addressed from a scientific perspective through the lens of, for example, well, just because it's always been done that way traditionally doesn't mean it always should be done that way. And let's take a look. Maybe we train people in just doing open awareness practice and other people in just doing focused attention practice and see who benefits more and what are the changes from the two. And so there are a couple of studies that have looked at that kind of thing. And not terribly uh, unexpectedly, my reading of those few studies that have done that has been that you know, in general, beginners do tend to experience more benefit from the focused attention practice for the very reason you're kind of pointing to, that if, if you don't have the focused attention kind of foundation of uh, as a skill, it's hard to really 
even engage in open awareness in, in, a, in a way that is anything other than just kind of having a wandering mind. <laughs> right. So. Right. But both practices, you can say, we know the, uh, from experiential evidence that there are changes in cognition and behavior that both. That's right. And so um, in terms of kind of bringing it to the brain, um, the, the general findings in people who've practiced, and, and this is uh, work done primarily with people who've uh, practiced the combination of the two. So leaving aside the question of, you know, whether uh, some of these findings are more related to having engaged with focused attention practice for, for a significant number of hours or more related to the open awareness practice. But in general, the domains that have been assessed include the domains of attentional processing that we can assess using brain measures. So yes, you know, we can use uh, different cognitive tests, for example, the ability to uh, respond accurately and uh, quickly to uh, a number of sensory stimuli, whether they be auditory or visual. And then, you know, it's possible to see the effect of meditative training on that behavior, how accurate and how fast, and also how, how much consistency there is in the speed of responding from trial to trial which is a, a, a measure that's actually fairly uh, specific to attentional difficulties in general. Um, when you test for ADHD, one of the things you test for is you know, how much variation is there in reaction time from trial to trial over many, many trials on these kinds of tests. And when there's a large variation over time, you know, okay, that's pretty much pathognomonic or you know, diagnostic for an ADHD uh, kind of brain, a brain that their attention just cannot stay engaged in a consistent way uh, to a task. So, you know, what has been found on those really basic kind of reaction time cognitive assessments is that meditation does increase the accuracy and the speed as well as decrease the variation of speed uh, to such tests. That's really interesting. There's a test, I think a pretty famous test, where they show you a video of people playing ball and there's a gorilla in the background, right? Yeah, we, we call that particular uh, test a, a kind of assessment of what is referred to as inattentional blindness. In other words, when your attention is engaged with one thing, which in this case, you're talking about that video where there's a basketball being passed between these uh, participants in the game, right. then uh, you become blind to something else, like a big gorilla <laughs> walking through the crowd and stopping and beating its chest as the ball is bouncing around it. And you know what most people find is that they don't see the gorilla because they're they're counting how many bounces the ball is doing during the the game as because that's the task that people are given when they're shown that video. Um, so yes, that very very well may be related to this finding that you know you the the prediction from this ki these kinds of findings in the cognitive neuroscience literature is that meditative practitioners, uh, experts in meditation would be less likely to miss the gorilla than a non-meditator. Well, I'll tell you from personal experience, I've been meditating for, let's say, a couple of decades, and I still drive by the street where I live because I don't recognize it. So <laughs> I can tell you Good from, point. from my... <laughs> it hasn't helped, and you, know, you can blink and I miss it. So yeah. that hasn't helped me. But other aspects have. Can you talk about... And I think you were getting here anyway, things like the increase of the hippocampus. This is stuff I learned from you, actually. And the decrease in the amygdala, what that means in terms of if somebody is thinking about, I want to start or continue my meditation practice, or I want to know more about mindfulness. What is it actually, what can science tell me how it's going to benefit me? Yeah, well... Um... When you start speaking of these uh, findings on the hippocampus and the uh, amygdala, you're, you're getting to one of the next areas I was going to get to in the kind of running down of uh, meditation effects on the brain, which are those effects that are related to affect and emotion. 
And of course, that is a big thing that brings people to practice, you know, um, their desire. Sometimes people do start engaging with practice, especially in the more recent years where, where mindfulness has become a bit of a, well, you could say there's some hype around it, um, but it's certainly become more widely recognized as a, a potential good in the pursuit of the good life. And so some people, you know, pursue it just because they hear about those benefits on attention and, um, you know, capacity to get things done more effectively, for example. But one of the things that has traditionally drawn people and continues draw, to draw people into practice is their desire to have greater mastery over their emotions and sometimes to relieve what can be pretty significant suffering in a lot of people's lives for whatever combination of reasons. And so the impact of mindfulness practices and meditation practices more generally on emotion and feeling are, are quite significant. The, the two particular brain areas you just mentioned have been uh, found across a number of studies as kind of the center of some action with regards to the effects of meditation. So, for example, one of the more higher impacted brain areas impl implicated in studies comparing long-term meditators and, and non-meditators when looking just at brain structure. What's, what's the difference in you know, which parts of the brain may be bigger or larger in the meditators versus the non-meditators? Um, the hippocampi have shown up as quite likely one of the areas that tends to be larger in the meditators' brains than in the non-meditators' brains. And of course, there's a caveat there that it could also be that people who's, who are living healthier lives and or who you know, have very robust brains and their, their hippocampi are just very healthier and, and larger to begin with, they're the ones more likely to kind of stick with meditation. And that's a kind of interpretation of these findings that hasn't yet been ruled out because we haven't been following people for years over the course of their engaging with or not engaging with meditation, you know, in a way that would allow us to really clearly know for sure whether these are kind of results of meditation or, or correlates of something else. But it's suggestive. And some studies of shorter term practice uh, over the course of months have also found some increases of hippocampal size. But that's a little more equivocal, and it hasn't been shown to the same extent that these studies with long-term meditators to com compared to controls, where the, the significance is pretty uh, clear in terms of the impact on increased hippocampal sizes. And the implication, meaning of this effect on the hippocampus, it turns out the hippocampus is a, quite an interesting part of the brain in regards to many aspects of kind of our, our, our mental and emotional lives. So they are really crucial uh, brain structures for the purposes of uh, encoding memories, encoding new memories in particular, and to some extent also uh, accessing old memories, although maybe a little less necessarily engaged in that process. And also they are responsive to and very much engaged with a circuit in the um, what traditionally was called the limbic lobes of the brain, these deep structures that are uh, really engaged by emotion in general. You know, they kind of sit at this interface of being part of the emotional circuitry of the brain and also very important uh, structures for the uh, laying down of new memories. And of course, when we have emotionally significant events happen in life, we are more likely to remember them. So there's a reason why they're at that kind of interface between emotional processing and also involvement with memory formation. And uh, they are also the one part of the brain uh, that continues to have new neurons born throughout the life. And those neurons born in the hippocampus uh, every day, all day, we're generating new neurons via a process called neurogenesis, the genesis of new neurons. And that neurogenic drive that is a, a part and parcel of the biological reality of the hippocampus is affected by stress. So we know, for example, that the hippocampi are smaller across uh, many different psychiatric conditions, all of which involve increased stress, you know, from depression to PTSD to schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So 
one likely explanation for the increased hippocampal size that we see in long-term meditators compared to non-meditators is that meditation helps one live their mental life in a way that stress doesn't uh, kind of overcome one nearly as much. And therefore, some of these negative impacts on the neurogenic drive in the hippocampus do not accrue in the hippocampus, doesn't degenerate as much with age, etc. And yeah, that's important to mention as well, that the hippocampal degeneration is it's certainly one of the areas in the brain that aging affects pretty significantly, uh, just as it affects uh, one's capacity for memory. Generally, it also specifically does affect the hippocampus, which is such a key part of the um, capacity to make new memories. So that's kind of the hippocampus story in short, or maybe not short. <laughs> But it's real and spoken like a true scientist with all the caveats. Yes. It's hard to go beyond, you know, that way of speaking, especially when one is engaged in this work, you know, scientifically, even to the present day. You know, it's it's very important to to recognize that there's still a lot more that we don't know than that we do know about these domains, even despite the the kind of growth of research in these areas. The effects on the amygdala are uh, a little easier and quicker to explain, which is simply that the amygdala is a kind of almond-sized and shaped uh, structure and the left and the right kind of underbelly of the brain, you could call it. Is that why they say that people are nuts? <laughs> That's a good question. Their amygdala <laughs> is malfunctioning? That's a good question. I never heard a particular uh, that reference being raised. Stick with me. You'll hear more things you never heard before. <laughs> the amygdala, though, does, you know, its function does relate to why one might be called nuts. You know, if, if somebody's amygdalas are going, amygdalae are, are, are going haywire, you might think that that person seems a bit nuts. Um, in other words, you know, it mediates a very specific kind of emotional responding. And it serves a very important role in the brain as a, a kind of alarm or fear sensor. So when information comes into the brain and the cortex kind of recognizes it and uh, recognizes there's some reason for alarm or fear here, it will send signals to the amygdala and the amygdala in turn will then activate the sympathetic nervous system as well as the other areas of the limbic circuitry, the kind of emotional and fear responding circuitry to really prepare the body as if there's something, you know, that, that might need to be responded to with the, the classic, you know, fight or flight kinds of body responses. And in general, one of the, the issues with the amygdala's functioning is that you know, while it's really important to have that basic uh, capacity to respond intact in order to live a, a life where you, where you survive, what happens for a lot of us humans is that our amygdalae are way too hyperactive for what is really useful for our, for our survival and our comfort and for our capacity to be, you know, kind of comfortable for other people to be around as well. So if you're, you know, busy kind of sensing fear inappropriately and preparing for fear and anger based responses, the challenges of life in a way that's less uh, reasoned and based on a kind of compassionate responding, but instead on a kind of overreactive fear and anger based mode of uh, kind of survival-based living, you know, it's both very stressful for oneself and it's really not fun to be around. So, you know, one of the things that meditative practices have been shown to uh, accomplish is to, in general, kind of tamp down the amygdala's uh, response. Now, of course, the caveat here is that you do want your amygdala to be responding when actual uh, biologically dangerous things are happening around you. You know, so when you have people in the scanner and you're showing them scary faces compared to neutral faces, for example, the idea that, you know, the, the perfect brain is the brain that responds equally to a happy face and a neutral face and, a, and an angry face, it's probably a little bit, uh, you know, kind of wrongheaded to think that way. It probably is quite appropriate 
and adaptive that have brain respond you know appropriately and differently to different types of stimuli given that that's part of how we navigate the world successfully is kind of responding as as is most appropriate in the in the conditions in which we find ourselves but in general a number of findings have shown this this kind of decreases especially in people who have anxiety disorders or depressive disorders the decreases in the somewhat over responding of the amygdala that is kind of uh, recognized as one of the markers of that particular kind of pathology. So everything you've been saying about the fight or flight response and stress and the sympathetic nervous system, I think it's pretty accepted uh, knowledge and fact that uh, there are perceivable improvements in how you handle stressful situations and how you balance your anxiety. I certainly know that from my personal experience. And you mentioned, uh, I'm going to cycle back to you talking about starting your meditation practice yourself when you were very, very young, and the motivation was to handle your anxiety. I think it was about your mother at the time. Can you talk about that? How has your practice affected you, your life, and your career, and how you deal with the world? Well, I would say... I can think of kind of two phases and um, domains of effects on my life. The first phase was more towards the early years in my life when I started practice, which was, you know, toward the end of my teens into my 20s. During that time, I was quite fascinated with the kind of big questions about consciousness and you know, small self versus large self and the experiences of transcendence and, and mystical states. But at a practical level, what, what drove my interest in meditation was also a little more centered on one of the aspects of anxiety that I uh, have struggled with in my life is, is specific social anxiety as opposed to more generalized anxiety. It's never been much of an issue, but social anxiety in particular, just kind of not feeling quite like I fit in it's something that I started struggling with at a fairly young age. And then, you know, related issues with, with depression. Um, never really overwhelmed by depression for a long period, but you know, just kind of some depressive tendencies. And I noticed as I got into practice as, as a young man uh, that the practices were helpful for those kinds of anxieties and, and depressive tendencies. And... I think, you know, by my mid to late 20s, by which time I really, you know, tried out a, a number of different practices and, and found the Vipassana style that particularly allowed me to go very deep into practice with some longer retreats, etc. I got a sense like, you know, I really have experienced some degree of mastery over those kind of uncontrolled kind of issues with anxiety and, and depression that had kind of afflicted me in earlier years. And it wasn't that the tendencies never came up again. Certainly, I, I feel like, you know, the nature of the the challenges that we humans experience is that, you know, to some extent or another, some echoes of our challenges will, are, are going to likely stick with us in, in one way or another for for pretty long periods, even when we, we gain some capacity to, to not be overcome by them. But there was really um, some degree of liberation that I felt from, you know, the kind of more uncontrolled nature of uh, those issues that meditative practices seem to give access to. And then, uh, you know, a, a kind of second phase and, and domain of, uh, of impact really has more to do with the experience of the kind of larger or expanded uh, sense of self that I'd always been curious about. Uh, but what I noticed as I gained kind of expertise with my practice is that engaging in practice would more reliably give me a little bit closer access to that uh, kind of experience of the expanded self as being my home, you know? So I think in the last 10, 15 years or so, you know, that's been a lot of where the benefit of meditation has been for me. It's just giving me a kind of regular taste of 
the transpersonal self, the self that's not just this body and this the story of this life, this, these thoughts, but um, kind of that all-encompassing uh, ground of being uh, that we are all kind of connected with. Do you find it challenging to balance that sense of, you know, the ultimate self being an expression of universal energy and, and not, maybe it's distinctive, but it's completely inseparable and intermingled with everything else that exists. And then the other reality, conventional reality, where there are boundaries and there are differences. Do you find it you know, hard to navigate those two realities? That's a good question. Um, I certainly have had periods of time in my life where I had some challenge with that. But in, in terms of, you know, in an ongoing way, no, not especially. I think I've, I've kind of come to terms with the fact that, you know, these two realities are both true in their own way <laughs> and they're not mutually exclusive, although, you know, logically it can be hard to uh, kind of square them through discursive reasoning. But, you know, that, that that's just kind of one of the paradoxes of life is that there's this kind of really uh, deep, more fundamental truth, uh, and there's the relative truth. And I, I'm lucky enough to, you know, not struggle with the ability to implement the kind of necessary disciplines and boundaries into my life to, you know, successfully navigate a job and relationships, etc. It is an interesting question, partly because I think that there's a there's a conundrum there for people, uh, for some of the people that I see, you know, clinically as a psychiatrist, that is an issue that I see people struggle with. And the way it uh, manifests in different people's lives, it can be quite different from person to person. But something uh, around the kind of access to some, you know, numinous domain, kind of mystical, spiritual types of experience that then um, is accompanied by a real challenge around and a lack of capacity around uh, implementing useful boundaries uh, in one's personal life uh, choices and people end up struggling with, you know, being able to keep a job or having really specific kind of delusional belief systems end up uh, kind of overtaking their, their logical mind um, that it's kind of born out of some access to the tr transcendent uh, experience, but then filtered through, you know, some kind of fractured uh, aspects of their own personal psyche and, and coming out in these ways that, you know, really give them a lack of capacity to deal with life on its own terms very successfully. That's a new phenomenon for me, by the way, that you've encountered these problems and uh, that you trace it back to this universal or ultimate reality versus conventional reality. Going back to what you said, your, your mastery of anxiety, and you talk about your, your uh, clinical practice, it seems incredibly daunting to me to work like you do in the ER psychiatric department in L.A. County downtown the amount of equilibrium, it seems, that you would need to have is almost superhuman uh, to be doing this week in and week out. <laughs> well, I think that uh, that probably overstates the case a little bit. You know, knowing knowing myself, knowing my colleagues there, you know, we are we are certainly not a group of people who uh, you know an objective observer would say, oh, you know, that group of folks who who run the psyche are. They are, have the most equilibrium of anybody I've ever seen. You know, in the one particular context of not being overcome by and reactive to you know, people's extreme levels of uh, psychosis and suicidality and um, outbursts of anger and delusional paranoia that can sometimes be quite intense and pointed directly at you as, as the physician that's trying to, to help out. Yes, you know, we, we tend to be pretty inflappable. But I think there's an, an interesting and, you know, 
in some ways unfortunate, but there's a, a kernel of hope in it, you know, aspect of it, which is the medical training involves habituation to these high stress situations, whether that be, you know, as an ER physician dealing with the trauma of, you know, gunshot victims and, and car accident victims, you know, people with mangled bodies coming in and you're the one trying to stabilize their life or the trauma surgeon who, you know, actually takes them to the OR and does really intense, uh, you know, surgical interventions uh, or the oncologist who's working with, you know, tens, twenties of patients uh, year round, new ones come in every day with uh, life-threatening or life-ending cancer diagnoses. It seems like, oh, you would just have to be, you know, have such equilibrium. The truth is that a lot of us, we are more, more than having great equilibrium. We are very practiced at stuffing down our emotional response and our empathic resonance with what we are observing, you know? And it's why physicians become so burned out because, you know, if you, if you stuff down your emotional response and your empathic kind of resonance with those things that you're observing around you, then you, you start, you know, stuffing down that emotional kind of availability for all other aspects of your life as well, because if you stood it down in one domain, it tends to spread to the rest. So, you know, I would say that that's, you know, that's the caveat that's important to recognize is that it's not that you have to be so resilient and have such equilibrium, but that you do at the very least have to be non-reactive. You know, you cannot be successfully working in that kind of environment uh, with those, you know, kinds of issues dealing with that kind of psychosis and intense affect uh, in a reactive way. You know, you're just... Uh, burn yourself out out of sheer emotional exhaustion <laughs> but you know for me personally i would say you know my, my mindfulness and meditation practice has has helped me quite a bit to be able to stay you know sensitive to the nature of the suffering that i'm uh, observing and working with while also not so reactive and kind of overcome by the the sadness or the the anger about it and I think that, that that's one general kind of simplification that I've certainly found in the, in the kind of overview of the, the brain studies I've done with long-term meditators compared to controls or novices learning to meditate, looking at how the brain responds to stimuli before and during and then after long periods of practice. And just finding that, yeah, you know, these uh, these twin goals of the meditative path of becoming more uh, sensitive to what is happening both in the inner world and, and the outer world and less reactive about it. There are a number of neural markers that I've found to really correlate with those uh, particular goals and that that is, um, you know, the experiential effect that I, I think I have uh, going across those domains of like its benefits for my own depression and, and, and anxiety issues to the uh, benefits with helping me to be a little bit more in touch with a deeper, um, more transcendent aspect of the self that cutting across it are those, those twin benefits of, you know, increasing sensitivity and at the same time, decreasing reactivity. Beautifully said. Okay. Before we wrap up, I, I have to ask you this. It's been uh, on the edge of my tongue uh, this whole time being in the, in music, we are always dealing with frequencies, sound waves, and we know that there are different kinds of brain waves at different frequencies that propagate at different frequencies. And I'm always curious to hear, and I'm curious to hear from you specifically, what your opinion is in terms of people that claim that if they generate certain frequencies um, and that you listen to that, that that will evoke the similar frequencies in the brain. And then it's usually tied to the claim that that evoking those frequencies in the brain will have all kinds of benefits for the psychological functioning as well, right? Right, right. So it's an interesting domain of uh, scientific inquiry that you're bringing up. And one thing that we do know is that if you stimulate the brain via any sensory channel, you know, whether that be auditory or visual or 
somatosensory, if you stimulate it at a given frequency, because of the nature of how the brain is responding so sensitively in, e in each of these domains to each stimulus that it receives, you will excite that same frequency in the brain. So for example, you, you know, stimulate the brain via a flashing light at 10 hertz or at 100 hertz, you will see you know, the, the visual cortex and the brain, uh, you know, some of the associated brain areas as well, starting to uh, generate a signal at that 10 hertz or 100 hertz frequency that you're flashing a light. Similarly, with a, with a sound, a 100 hertz tone, uh, 50 hertz tone, you'll see that 50 hertz or the 100 hertz show up in the uh, cortical response of the brain. And the interesting thing as well is that uh, it, at some point you start you stop being able to drive the brain's response at very very high frequencies and these are frequencies that the ear can pick up because it's so highly tuned to picking up high fre high frequencies but measuring uh, for example 10,000 hertz 10 kilohertz signal which the ear picks up as a sound wave but uh, measuring it as an impulse in the EEG uh, recordings of the electrical fluctuations measured on the scalp uh, is not really possible. And it's probably because at those very high frequencies, the neural circuitry just doesn't drive that, that fast. So what is often done in an effort to drive the brain at a given frequency is to use what, what are called binaural beats. And there, you can use two different frequencies that differ from each other by a specified amount that you want the brain to resonate at. So you can put 500 hertz in one ear and 507 in the other ear, and you, the thinking was in the development of this technology that you would then see a brain response at seven hertz, the difference between what was coming in one ear and the other ear. And do you? Do you see that? And in fact, you do. You know, there may be some caveats as to exactly which, you know, which frequencies you can induce and which you can't. But in general, across a lot of the brain frequencies that are most high in amplitude naturally, which is the kind of one to 30 hertz range, you know, you can drive the brain uh, by using that binaural beat technology. You can drive the brain to have some response and increase in the amplitude of the seven hertz signal, for example, in that case. And what does that do? Yes, that's the real question here. It's less clear what that does than the fact that you can record it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, th there have been some uh, preliminary studies. And, you know, when we spoke recently, I said I was going to look into the literature to see if there was anything more convincing. I wasn't able to find anything that's really comprehensive with really good, uh, you know, scientific controls and uh, methodology to really nail down that the effect that's being uh, reported is really specifically due just to that induced frequency of responding as opposed to you know all the other aspects of when you're in a, in a study and being given some special attention and a new kind of high-tech thing, there's a lot of reasons why people could report some benefit. Well, you're doing incredible, amazing research. I guess it's, it's targeted at the skeptics in society who want to see data, they want to see hard data of scientific uh, biological improvements that meditation practice or mindfulness practice or any of these other contemplative practices can evoke. Um, those of us who are less scientifically uh, inclined are satisfied with our own experiences. But um, it's obviously just amazing stuff what you're doing. And I know you're researching different aspects of mindfulness and meditation on the brain. And again, going back to what we first started to talk about with psychedelics, what do you envision your research finding about psychedelics and meditation and the effects on the brain? Well, that's a good question. And I have thought about it quite a bit, having um, you know, started out even from my earliest scientific investigations as a graduate student back almost 20 years ago. And what I anticipate finding 
is something that obviously I do not have evidence for yet. The studies need to be done to show it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm quite open to the fact that, you know, maybe things won't turn out the way I anticipate. But what I anticipate finding is that the use of psychedelics within a therapeutic context, which is very different from the use of psychedelics as some kind of um, substances to have fun with, or, you know, some, some party drug, et cetera. It's quite different to approach it within a, a ceremonial or sacred or therapeutic context. Um, but the use of sub these substances in that context can be beneficial to and complementary to the benefits obtained through meditation and mindfulness training, you know, decreasing reactivity, increasing sensitivity, increasing the, uh, the sense of uh, connection between the, the small self and the large self, the kind of the experience of living in the uh, experience of, of a more transcendent uh, identity, that those different domains can be augmented both through mindfulness and through psychedelic assisted therapy, and that doing them together will potentiate uh, the effect of each on the other. That's one thing. Another is that as tools for specifically working with different aspects of psychiatric pathology, whether that be addiction or anxiety or the complex of anxiety, depression, and flashbacks kind of living in the past, the past haunting the present, that PTSD or these kind of traumatic stress-related disorders are kind of related to, that I think also that there will be some complementary benefits that the psychedelic-assisted therapy may add to mindfulness training and vice versa. So, you know, as these two fields are starting to uh, mature, each of them, the psychedelic-assisted therapy field, where, you know, there's now a number of clinical trials uh, exploring the potential for psychedelics to have enough clinical benefit to be, you know, at least as good and looking like quite possibly better than some of the mainstream therapies that have currently been uh, utilized for many of our common psychiatric conditions. Um, and the mindfulness-related field where, you know, showing that mindfulness-related practices can really have clinically significant benefits for addiction, for depression and anxiety, for uh, even for psychosis and, and PTSD that um, you know, some of the aspects and the mechanisms by which the psychedelics work are likely to help free up some of those areas that still can be stuck when just engaging in meditation practice and vice versa. And in particular, I'd say, this is the last thing I'd say about it, that you know, some of the ways in which these two forms of therapy can be complementary include that psychedelic-assisted therapy can really help people get in touch with both deep repressed aspects of memory and childhood uh, developmental trauma that for some reason or another, they give access to a state of mind where that stuff can come rushing back. And in connection to that, also the ability to really deeply feel one's emotional response to one's past experiences in a way that oftentimes meditative practice you know, can keep us a little bit at a distance and a remove from that kind of close contact with our emotional self. So I think that's where psychedelics can really offer something of benefit. And then the mindfulness practices can offer such a needed and almost um, critically kind of essential aspect of the capacity for the psychedelic therapy to translate into long-term benefits and changes in one's way of operating in daily life. So instantiating some of those changes in, you know, kind of freeing up the sense of a disordered, depressive or anxious self and, you know, having a lightness of being and more cognitive flexibility, uh, you know, when you're no longer experiencing those effects because of the acute effect of the drug, but now, you know, living your life and hoping to kind of maintain those benefits in the long term, I can see meditative practices as really playing a, an essential role in helping to uh, kind of more deeply sustain 
those kind of benefits in, in uh, people's lives. Well, I, I think uh, your field is going to have a lot to look forward to in the next probably 10 years, right? I hope so. <laughs> I'm certainly a bit surprised that it's uh, matured and developed as fast as it has over the last 20 years. And so I am, I am hopeful. And I think, you know, one thing I would say about it is if there wasn't something really of clinical and human value to these two different ways of, uh, you know, engaging the mind through a psychedelic assisted route or through the meditation and mindfulness. If it wasn't valuable, then the, the scientific investigation over the last 20 years wouldn't be growing and growing as it is. You know, it's only because when we start digging using the methods of science that there's something really there that so many people are joining the search, you know, to dig more. Well, on that very optimistic lightness of being note, <laughs> I know that uh, you've got 15 jobs. I don't know if you're going to now go to the uh, Department of Psychiatry or the hospital. I got to say, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, discourse with us. And thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Richard. Thank you. You know, we have a research project we didn't talk about, but uh, that's right. That's for the next. That's not part two. <laughs> yes. So thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Take care, Richard. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Khan. For our next episode, we're going to be heavily back into music. There's going to be an incredible singing coach who has this method of singing meditation, which has actually changed people's lives some of which I know personally. So uh, looking forward to that. In the meantime, I'd like to thank my co-producer, Hannah L. Bowers, and I'd like to thank James Bianco, my crack editor, and the art department, which is Anne-Marie Butcher and Taylor Matthews. And lest we forget, please support us any way you can, whether it's giving us a high rating, giving us a review, whatever it might be, we really appreciate it. Until next time, I hope that you can stay in a higher octave and that you and I stay in tune.